From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe again from you. Hi, this is Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors, and welcome to this week's edition of NAPS Chat. Today, I am so pleased to have with us Charlie Moskowitz as our guest. Charlie was the Chief Legislative Counsel to former Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri, where she was the ranking Democrat on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. In addition, Charlie served as legislative assistant to former Representative John Tierney of Massachusetts. In total, Charlie served a little under a decade on Capitol Hill, but his most interesting job in my mind was he was a staff member at the National Basketball Association. And Charlie right now is the executive vice president at the Signal Group, a Washington-based public affairs and government relations operation that seeks to influence policy and political decision-making and they have an interest in the pursuit of meaningful and constructive postal reform legislation. So, Charlie, I'm going to ask you to go back in your history a little bit and ask you, uh, you have worked with many postal stakeholders, both for Congressman Tierney and, of course, for Senator McCaskill. And you work specifically on postal issues and postal legislation in the Senate. Do you have any key takeaways from that experience? Thanks, Bob. Uh, yes, I have many thoughts on uh, my experience with um, postal reform and the stakeholder community, uh, both from my time with Congressman Tierney, who was on House Oversight and Reform, and Senator McCaskill. Both the HISGAC and House Oversight and Reform are the, as you know, the uh, two committees of primary jurisdiction for the Postal Service. And it's a really interesting issue. Um, it was particularly interesting to work on for Senator McCaskill, who represented a, a very rural state uh, and and really helped me to sort of understand that this is uh, one of those issues that kind of scrambles party lines or used to scramble party lines and is much more sort of a rural versus urban issue and not necessarily a Democrat versus Republican issue. But that was uh, in many years ago in the times before the Trump administration, and it seems to have gotten a lot more partisan recently. Was there, was, was there a distinction that uh, you detected from the way in which, let's say, the unions played this issue versus the management associations, the mailers, and the competitors of the Postal Service? Well, everybody, as is often the case on issues involving um, different stakeholders, similar stakeholders, everybody sort of has their key priorities, and everybody sort of thinks that they have put their skin in the game. Uh, it's always, you know, the, what I would always hear from the unions is, you know, look at the workforce, for example. It's been cut by 40% over the last 10, 15 years. We have already paid the price of the problematic business model that the Postal Service has right now. Uh, the mailers, of course, would say, well, look, you know, if we raise prices more than the market will allow or are based on market prices, um, where you're going to just crater volume and it's going to lead to a, a death spiral for the Postal Service. So everybody sort of had their different trigger about what the death, what was going to trigger the death spiral of the Postal Service. And it seems actually that 
it was none of the above. It was the coronavirus that eventually triggered what it looks like is is sort of a, a really pretty bad death spiral right now that the Postal Service is in in some pretty dire straits. Yeah, well, let, let, let me move on to this, uh, the, co- the COVID-19 issue. And I want to mention something to you that in the past, Chairman Johnson, who now chairs the, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, talked about engaging in some type of postal bankruptcy in order to reorganize the Postal Service and abrogate union contracts and shed itself of statutory benefits such as health and uh, pensions. At the same time, and just recently, Mitch McConnell, in response to the impact that COVID-19 has had on states and municipalities, has argued maybe it's not so bad that states and municipalities declare bankruptcy in order to shed itself of its pension liabilities. Is there a sort of consistency between the message we've heard from Chairman Johnson and from the majority leader? That's a great point, Bob. I think there is, and I think it comes from a very doctrinaire place. You know, what's been interesting to me over the last six, seven, eight years now, from the time I started with Senator McCaskill, when we shared a HISGAC subcommittee with Coburn, before Coburn became ranking member of the full committee, is that the difference between sort of how Senator Coburn thought through the postal problems and how Senator Johnson has. I make no mistake, there was nobody more conservative than uh, Tom Coburn. But he, I think when he became ranking member of the full committee, understood his obligation as a leader and as a, a member of Congress and understood even more importantly that the Postal Service was truly a service to all Americans that needed to provide access to all Americans. Ron Johnson, who I would consider in in a lot of respects not as conservative as Tom Coburn, not as libertarian as he is uh, anyway, but he has taken sort of an even more doctrinaire approach to this. He very much, you know, believes that the Postal Service should stand on its own two feet just as any private sector entity would have to do and has as a result, been really a lot more difficult to work with and compromise on because he is not particularly someone who's interested in uh, seeing the Postal Service as a service, as a government service to all Americans. And so I think that that's always been sort of his default position, uh, much the same way that Mitch McConnell is approaching the the talks with over COVID-19 with, for, you know, state and local governments. So it, it seems to me like there are a lot of similarities there. They both come from a very sort of conservative, politically conservative place. Makes sense. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the way things ever get done in in Congress and in Washington is by compromise. And I know it can be a dirty word these days and I know it can be hard to come by. But anything that ends up happening, it, that's sort of how it happens. The difference, the, the key difference I see between the two is... I think that Mitch McConnell is, is is saying these things as a way of political posturing and, and positioning and doing this as part of the, the broader negotiation that he's having to have. Whereas Ron Johnson, I think, if given his druthers, would just absolutely privatize the Postal Service, let it go bankrupt, and sort of use Fannie and Freddie as a model for a, a uh, quasi-public sector bankruptcy. When you say Freddie and Fannie, you talk about Freddie Mae and Fannie Mae, the folks that underwrite a lot of more mortgages in the United States. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. They, 
got into real financial trouble, as you might recall, during the financial crisis in 07, 08, and went into receivership. FHFA basically took them over, and they're kind of sitting there still in receivership waiting for Congress to figure out what to do with them 10, 10, 11 years later now, too. Now, what's interesting when we speak about uh, Senators McConnell and Johnson is that they don't come from urban states. I mean, in the state of Wisconsin, when you go outside of Milwaukee and Madison and maybe Oshkosh, possibly, it's a fairly rural state. And Kentucky, once you get outside of Louisville, Lexington, um, and maybe Frankfurt, you really don't have a uh, large urban constituency there. So is it counterintuitive that they would take a position that could do some serious damage to the Postal Service in light of their constituency? Yeah, that's been the most interesting thing to me about Senator Johnson's positions is that he really seems not to care very much about his own state interests and the interests of his own constituents. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I think he, like I said, is a conservative person and uh, is leaving his sort of conservative policy hat on as he's thinking through these things and is taking that lens and those beliefs to his work as the chairman of his guy. Very recently, the Postal Service Board of Governors, of which there are currently five, three of whom are Republican and were appointed by President Trump, as were the two Democrats were nominated by President Trump also. They unanimously approved a resolution in support of legislation that would provide the Postal Service with $25 billion in emergency assistance, $25 billion in capital assistance in order to keep pace with the crisis and move beyond the crisis, as well as forgiveness for past debt, and a new credit line. And these are all, as you indicated before, um, earlier on, that the challenge to the Postal Service is now what we had thought it would be a challenge, let's say, two years ago, but it's the COVID-19 crisis. Tell me, how do you think the current COVID-19 pandemic impacts the Postal Service and its future viability? That's a great question. And I think the, the most immediate thing is that it has really moved up the timeline on the liquidity crisis that we sort of all saw coming down the road for the Postal Service. But, you know, everybody thought that we had a few years of uh, runway to figure out how to put together a real 21st century Postal Service and what that would look like for the country. COVID-19, I think, has demonstrated both the precarious financial nature of the Postal Service and also its critical importance to this country I think what most Americans don't realize, particularly those in suburban and rural America, is that the Postal Service is bringing them all their packages. It is not profitable for UPS, FedEx, and Amazon, and DHL, and others to deliver packages to rural America. And according to the census, 97% of the landmass in this country is rural. So there are a lot of people living in and around this country in suburban and rural America that are getting their Amazon packages and their FedEx deliveries from the Postal Service. Without that, in the COVID-19 era, when, you know, stores are closed and we're all doing, we're all ordering everything online, we thought it was getting, we thought we were getting dependent on Amazon before, but it's only gotten worse since we've all been sort of quarantined and stuck at home. And uh, without the Postal Service, frankly, we're not getting a lot of, a lot of 
folks in this country are not getting a lot of those packages. To mention the fact that the Postal Service is actually included in plans, uh, pandemic response plans and um, and responses to things like anthrax. There are there have been discussions and reports put out about how the Postal Service would play a role in delivery of, of medications and countermeasures and things like that. They are almost always the first government organization and government service that is back up and running after a natural disaster. And they are always, because of that, used by other federal agencies to deliver critical information from folks like FEMA about what's going on in and around their communities. Yeah. And as I, as I recall, the, C, the Centers for Disease Control had a memorandum which, which um, provided that the Postal Service would be the premier agency of delivery of um, much-needed medical and uh, medical supplies in the event of a biological hazardous event, including a, a pandemic such as we're currently experiencing. And I recall that one of Sarah McCaskill's uh, predecessors as a lead as the lead Democrat on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Joe Lieberman, had legislation that included that priority in it as the Postal Service being the main player. That's exactly right. And to, uh, you were talking about the board as well. Frankly, uh, I'm just glad that we finally have a board in place mm. to provide some of the guidance and some of the sort of forward-looking thought that needs to happen for the Postal Service. One of my great frustrations, particularly in the last few years that I was on the Hill and moving into the Trump administration as the Postal Service has sort of careened closer and closer to the liquidity crisis point, is that there There was nobody who was really taking a step back and saying, looking at the mail volume, we've known that the mail volume is going in the direction that it is for 10 years now, looking at the mail mix, the 21st century mail mix, and saying, what do we want the Postal Service to be in the 21st century? What's that going to look like? There are a lot of different models out there. And, and but there was no strategic thought. And this is not, you know, I don't mean to disparage the current postal leadership. When you CEO of a, of a huge organization like Postal Service and you're just trying to get the mail delivered every day, there's not a lot of time and bandwidth to be doing that sort of critical long term thinking. And that's really what the board was for. And so I'm just glad that we finally have some board members in there who care about the Postal Service and the future of the Postal Service and can do some of that long-term thinking and can approve things like a $50 billion proposal uh, that, they've, that they've approved recently, as you said. One of the projects that you're currently working on for the Signal Group is to develop and to put together a grassroots initiative in support of the Postal Service. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So one of the things that I think has been really missing from this fight is uh, the public awareness um, and anger at the lack of action um, and what that's going to mean for their mail delivery. Uh, like I said, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that most people understand that the Postal Service carries packages the last mile for FedEx, UPS, and Amazon. Um, and I think, frankly, that a lot of people uh, in urban areas feel that you know, more than 50% of my mail is quote unquote junk mail now. And, and so what do I really need the postal service for, especially, you know, here in Washington where, uh, you know, my pack, my Amazon packages actually do get delivered by Amazon. And so helping folks understand the, how critical the postal service still is to most of this country, to all of this country is going to be a big piece of sort of changing the narrative 
um, particularly for folks like Ron Johnson and Mitch McConnell and the president, I would say as well, in his task report are, I think, in order to help build the momentum for an understanding that the Postal Service is a critical service that needs to be available to all Americans. And and by available, I don't mean just that uh, it's going to, you're still going to get mail delivered, but that it's going to be at a price point that is affordable to all Americans is, and that there are going to be, you know, postal post offices and other retail locations that are, you know, available to all rural America, where you're not going to have to drive 30, 40 miles to get to a post office. In order to get there, I think there needs to be a real broad sort of public grassroots awareness of of uh, the sort of dire nature that the Postal Service is in. Um, because without that, I think you're going to see a repeat of what happened during the CARES Act uh, negotiation. And uh, you know, from my end, what happened there, you know, from the sort of the cheap seats that I'm in now, not being on the Hill, it seemed like what happened is uh, that, you know, the stakeholders and mostly Democrats on the Hill rallied around a proposal that got sort of uh, rejected by Senator Johnson, who had his own counterproposal, which then subsequently got rejected by the administration and by Treasury. And they, I mean, they really went to the mattresses on this. According to them, the president was ready to veto the entire CARES Act coronavirus um, bailout package over this postal language. And they ended up, the administration ended up getting exactly what they wanted. They got a $10 billion loan and um, on, on, on Treasury's terms. And so anybody who thinks that the administration is just going to roll over and take whatever Congress passes in the next round of postal negotiations in August or, or whenever that happens, I think is is uh, deluding themselves. And so I think that, you know, the administration holds all the cards. And if you're somebody who doesn't like what the administration's vision of postal reform is, I think you need to change the political ground under which you're operating right now. And so that's what we're trying to do. And how how is Signal attempting to do that? Uh, so what we'd like to do is put together a grassroots and grass tops campaign, public facing. You know, I think time is short, frankly, and there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen right now dealing with the specifics of policy. And so I think it's hard for Signal to sort of insert itself into the policy discussion at this moment in time, only because this has been going on for a long time with a lot of established and entrenched interests. But what we'd like to do is sort of manage the public facing piece of this. So put together some campaign style content, videos, rapid response. You know, one of the things that I was really surprised about was none of the stakeholders President Trump, in one of his daily press conferences last week, was asked about the Postal Service and said explicitly, we need to raise prices on packages. That is the way to solve this. First of all, that's incorrect, that there's, you can't raise prices on packages enough to solve this. Second of all, that's a message that if I'm a stakeholder, I'm blasting out to the public far and wide. I, I mean, I took a clip of that and I sent it around to some folks and I said, hey, why isn't this on your social media? Why isn't this... Uh, why haven't you been, you know, blasting this far and wide that the president is trying to raise prices on packages at a time when literally the entire country is dependent on package delivery for everything right now? The, it's those types of things, um, strategically placed op-eds by 
folks that are running companies that depend on the postal service, people like, uh, you know, the, your Hallmarks and your Warby Parkers and your uh, the AARP and folks like that who are, ha- are have credible voices within their communities and can make the case that we need a vibrant, sustainable postal service if folks are going to continue getting the the uh, the service that they need. It would seem to me that the mail-order pharmaceutical companies have a big stake in this also, and particularly with the pandemic and people are looking for prescription medications because they are hesitant about going to the drugstore, even if they are convenient within in a neighborhood, they have a stake in this. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, there are, I think there are a lot of folks who don't realize they have a stake in this or are not paying attention or just have not sort of been traditionally involved in policy discussions in general and postal policy in particular. I would love to talk to folks who have, you know, direct-to-consumer online businesses who are dependent on reasonably priced affordable deliveries like, you know, Dollar Shave Club and, and folks like that who are selling, you know, there's a bunch of sock companies online. They're selling goods that are, they're successful because they are bypassing the retail and the markup there. And they're selling, you know, good products as well, obviously, but that's dependent on having a reasonably priced direct to consumer delivery method. And if you have to pay, you know, UPS prices or FedEx prices to deliver those goods, that makes those particularly the low-cost direct-to-consumer goods, you know, really difficult to compete. Yeah, and small businesses have a stake because they can't negotiate volume discounts with the with UPS and FedEx because they're Absolutely. just – so their only choice is the Postal Service. Absolutely. I mean, the, the small businesses that Etsy and eBay uh, support are going to be critical to this. There's uh, – I mean, you just go down the list and there's, there's just so many – different players that have not or companies that are dependent on the postal service that just have not been really involved in the past. And even those that have, you know, I, I think uh, it's not always the number one issue for, for a lot of these companies. And so they don't always pay attention to it. And, but you know, the question is, what are they going to do without it? And I think that's a question that they probably don't want to face. And so, but they need to make their voices heard. Yeah, Charlie, do you detect a change, particularly within the editorial policy of a lot of major print news media, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Chicago Sun Tribune, when they're putting out edits and there are op-eds appearing in these newspapers uh, supporting the Postal Service and demanding that uh, Congress take uh, action to really relieve the pressure on the Postal Service as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, actually, that's been one encouraging sign of all of this has been the amount of coverage that postal policy has gotten in the mainstream media, in national publications, and to some extent in in more local publications as well. But again, I think that this is something that is being talked about occasionally. There's a story here, there's a story there, but there's no real coordinated approach to saying, you know, kind of looking at the policy landscape, looking at the state of negotiations, how they're playing out, what that timeline looks like, and doing things in a coordinated, measured, and methodical way to make sure that you are getting the message out there, 
hitting the right target audience at the right time to maximize the leverage that you have in the policy negotiations. And that's that's what we're trying to do is be more strategic and coordinate all of these efforts so that it's not just a random story here and a random story there that doesn't really impact the policy. When you talk about targeting, are we targeting, let's say, those members in the Senate who are influenceable? I mean, I guess if there's such a word, in terms of uh, the White House, is, is, that a, is that a target? I mean, I think so, the, the House, I think, is pretty firm that they would like to help us. I think that there are a couple of different targets here. Uh, sort of when I was thinking about this more long term, of course, there was before the coronavirus hit. I envisioned a lot of emphasis on Senator Portman, who, if the Republicans keep the Senate, is going to be the next chairman of his GAC. Now, but now that we are operating on a much shorter time frame, I think what would be most interesting from my perspective is to target some of the members who have the potential to influence either the congressional process or the White House, but have not necessarily uh, don't have, uh, as, as we like to say on the Hill, don't have the pen. They're not the ones who are going to be in the room writing the bill. But they can be sort of on the outside, standing at the door saying, we don't like this and we want this. And we understand that for our constituents, this is we want this, that and the other thing. Or we're not going to vote to privatize the Postal Service because that's going to mean post office closures in rural states uh, across America, because those, frankly, are the ones that are underperforming. If you're only looking at this from an economics perspective, you're going to close the underperforming post offices. And. I mean, frankly, my postal service, my post office in Cleveland Park, I would bet performs pretty well. Do I need it? Probably not, because I can hop on a bus or the metro and be at the next post office in five minutes. But that's not the case for, you know, most of rural America there. When we were negotiating a few bills ago, you know, on behalf of Senator McCaskill, we made we made sure that there was language in there saying that any closures of any decisions to close a post office had to include a analysis of how close the next closest post office was because, you know, you don't want folks having to go in January in rural Montana to drive 50 miles to drop off their, you know, rent check or whatever it is. From a sort of inside the beltway position, it's targeting those members who are persuadable but don't necessarily have the pen and but whose vote is going to be needed at the end of the day. And then from an outsider perspective, from a sort of outside the beltway perspective, it's targeting on the grassroots level folks that can make a fuss with those members of Congress. So, you know, it's it's uh, looking at rural states like Missouri and, and Josh Hawley or Florida, because they have a big senior population who, you know, relies heavily disproportionately on the Postal Service. And Rick Scott is now a member of his GAC. So kind of looking at the landscape like that and doing that sort of targeting. And then obviously, you know, uh, focus on Kentucky. The other thing that's great about some of our digital capabilities is that we can do real micro-targeting with, uh, you know, on on digital platforms, on social media. And this is something that a lot of folks are using down town now in the in the lobbying world is like i mean doing things as specific as targeting ads just at the uh phones that are in the white house and it's pretty incredible the kind of targeting you can do now so that's that's kind of what we had in mind that's great now from the national association of postal supervisors perspective what we're doing and 
is we are targeting those, particularly in the Senate, as you would say, the persuadables, not necessarily on uh, the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, but those who have a, a large rural population, former chairman of the HISGAC, uh, Susan Collins from Maine. Uh, I was about to mention her. Yeah. Um, you have Joni Ernst from Iowa, who has a large rural area. Corey Gardner from Colorado. I mean, I mean Senator McSally has a, a large rural area, and they all are up for election this year. So by virtue of them facing the voters, they indeed are persuadable by definition. Absolutely. Uh, if this were a video program and not a podcast, you would see me nodding vigorously. Uh, that's certainly the other sort of target-rich environment is folks that are up for re-election who have big rural population and who don't want to be put in a position of taking a bad, tough vote in August, September, October before their election. So so the, the Corey Gardners and the Susan Collins of the world and, and McSally also, I think, are, are prime targets for this. Now, Senator Cornyn may be somebody else who's, mm-hmm. who's worth looking at. You know, I don't think anybody thinks he's in real, real trouble, but uh, the Democrats have a great candidate in Texas. They are the Democrats are perpetually excited about the opportunity to make Texas blue. Although I, I think that, uh, you know, they get overexcited sometimes about that. But uh, he's another person that I would look at, particularly since he is in leadership. So I, I, there are, I, I think, great opportunities to peel off Republicans. Yeah, but the countervailing issue and something that I think was really made clear in the last negotiation is that there are no Republicans on the Hill who are going to get out in front of the White House on this and the administration. They do not want to risk the ire of the president and his Twitter account and his Twitter followers. And this is just, frankly, not an issue that they think probably resonates enough to to make that political calculus worth crossing the president for. So at the end of the day, I think that this is going to end up being a negotiation between Democrats, the stakeholder community, together with the stakeholder community and the administration. Uh, the administration seems to have in mind a lot of what they want to do in some respects. I think there are very clear things that they want to do in some respects, but uh, I also don't think that those things are going to ultimately put the Postal Service on a sustainable financial path. So outside of those, you know, sort of core issues, I think that there is a lot of room for negotiation, but but I think that's where the negotiation ultimately is going to end up between the Democrats uh, and the stakeholder communities and, and the administration. Well, Charlie, thank you for joining me this week on NAPS Chat, and uh, we look forward to your work on uh, putting together this coalition and uh, grassroots advocacy. And with that, I'm going to wish everyone a pleasant weekend and until next week. I'm and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you I'm gonna